Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, also known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, we'll jump right back in with the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with Sansa 3 in A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I'm going to be doing a series of episodes, some on my own, some with guest hosts, including picking up right where I left off last time Jeff was away with J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Last week, we covered Book 4, Chapter 2 of The Lord of the Rings, The Passage of the Marshes. This week, we're going into Book 4, Chapter 3, The Black Gate is Closed. In the previous chapter, Gollum led Frodo and Sam towards Mordor, their dread growing with every step. They've heard unholy shrieks overhead, seen the outline of a flying ringwraith against the moon, and walked through the barren wasteland that marks the beginning of the Dark Lord's domain. Now... At last, they have arrived at the entranceway to Mordor proper, the Black Gate. Our heroes have to figure out a way inside. How's that going to go? Well, the chapter title gives it away. The Black Gate is closed. You could say that ruins the suspense, but this chapter isn't about suspense so much as an overwhelming sense of doom, from the title on down. It's about what is virtually an impossible task, and all the choices and consequences that go into dealing with an impossible task. It's a no-win situation, and so is logistically intriguing, as well as eschatologically terrifying. As the chapter starts, Tolkien tells us that their journey to Mordor is over. It's a bitter irony. They've come this far, reached their goal, and are forced to turn aside. There's a very I-don't-know-what-I-expected feel to this scene, like that bit in Arrested Development that ends up in memes where Michael sees a bag in a fridge labeled Dead Bird, opens it up, recoils, and then goes, Well, I don't know what I expected. The hobbits kept going through the Emin Muil and the Dead Marshes because they wanted to make it here, to the worst place in the world. And lo and behold, it's the worst place in the world. That's exactly what it said on the package. I don't know what I expected. The Black Gate is written to give an impression of unimaginable strength, inducing not only fear but despair in the audience as much as the characters. Tolkien takes his time establishing the geography, grounding it, as always, in language and history. He tells us what both the elves and the men call these mountains looming above the wasteland, two species condemned to share the same fight, the same foe, the same stories in different tongues. The elves lost their heroes on the battleground that became the Dead Marshes, or on the slopes of Mount Doom. Since then, they've dwindled and retreated, leaving the watch on the mountains, and so their naming rights, to men, who have in turn dwindled and retreated. Sauron came home, and his servants retook those towers. Now they watch the other way, magnifying Sauron's infernal gaze until it sweeps across the land like a storm. These towers are called the Teeth of Mordor. The Black Gate is like a gigantic mouth, a barely restrained beast of metal and wheels that is always ready to swallow you up and tear you to shreds. All the word choices add to this horror atmosphere. Bitter, barren, broken, black-boned and bare. Tolkien describes the veil guarded by the gate as a deep defile, a telling word choice. This is a place of defilement, a sickness upon the land. Another dreadful day of fear and toil had come to Mordor, Tolkien writes. This is just an ordinary work shift here. This is life under the shadow. This is the model that will be forcefully exported to the rest of Middle-earth unless the quest succeeds. Book 4 began with Sam saying that we're in a fix, Master Frodo, and no mistake— And he says much the same thing here. 
This is clearly as far as we're ever going to get. They could sneak their way through mountains and marshes, ducking whenever the ringwraiths do a flyby, but there's no subterfuge to be had here. This is why Boromir in the movies was so adamant that it was impossible to make it past the Black Gate. It's a monument not only to exploitation and greed, but surveillance. There is evil here that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. They are defeated. The Fellowship has failed. In this moment, all Sam can think of is home and family. Sam's father always warned him that things would go badly if he followed Frodo and Bilbo down onto the circular road of story. But Sam doesn't regret anything. He's not as naive as he appears. He always knew there was little hope of success because the road always led right here. His cheerfulness was his strength. As Tolkien writes, he didn't need hope to keep going, just the absence of despair, because cheerfulness is Sam's default status. The Black Gate is despair given form. Abandon hope, ye who enter here, or ye who try and fail to enter here. So now all Sam has is Frodo, just as all Frodo has is Sam. That'll have to be enough. Our love for and loyalty to each other, at the end of all things. Sam is only here so Frodo wouldn't have to face it alone. And Sam will stick to that even in the face of despair. All he wishes is that he got to see his father again, one last time. To let the old man say I told you so to his heart's content. Unlike, say, Boromir, Sam's ego isn't on the line here. He doesn't feel the need to have been right all along. He's in this for love, not victory. It's that clarity you find in no-win situations. Staring death in the face will, if nothing else, reveal what really matters to you. What matters to Sam is Frodo. What matters to Frodo is winning his internal struggle with the ring. He does need to prove that Boromir was wrong to doubt him, and that Gandalf was right to trust him, to die for him. This is the only way to do that, and so he will do it. As Tolkien writes, Frodo looks grim, filthy, and haggard, reflecting the desolate landscape around them. But his face is resolute, his eyes are clear, and he's done cowering, standing instead in defiance of that desolation. He is ready to sacrifice himself, a martyr figure joining the dead in their marshes. As when he left the Fellowship behind, he's not asking anyone to die with him. And hey, that means at least we'll be rid of Gollum, Sam thinks. Eh, but even there, he just can't catch a break. We've covered what matters to Sam and Frodo. What matters to Gollum? The ring, of course. That's all that matters to him. He stopped attacking Frodo for it mostly because, as long as Frodo has it, Sauron doesn't. And Gollum knows that if Sauron gets the precious back, Gollum will never see it again. Why bring them to this hopeless place, then? Gollum admits that he knew it would be basically impossible to make it through the gate. He says that he was only following orders. The master of the precious said to bring him to the black gate, so that's what I did. Gollum is such a complex character because his bootlicking is genuine on some level, as we see in this chapter when Frodo terrifies him into subservience, but it's also a performance he's putting on until he can work out a way to get the ring back. And that's obvious when he claims he had no idea Frodo would actually try and make it through the Black Gate. Why else would they come here, bro? Gollum says he thought he would just get to run off and be good at this point in the quest. As I've said before, I think Tolkien is using Gollum to mock insincere reformations. People who say that they've been transformed into goodness overnight without putting any of the slow hard work into improving their behavior. As per usual, Gollum is both pathetic and dangerous. Now, Gollum is 100% correct that Frodo was on a suicide run, and that if Sauron gets the ring, he'll eat all the world. A childish but chilling phrase that sums up Sauron's master plan more succinctly than elves or wizards ever managed to do. 
Sauron is pure appetite. He'll eat all the world. It's Gollum's gnawing need blown up to an apocalyptic scale. But then, in the middle of all Gollum's begging and pleading, he sneaks this in there. Give it back to little Smeagol. Uh, he just can't help himself. Smeagol will keep it safe. He will do lots of good, especially to nice hobbits. He might not even be lying. Not consciously, anyway. He loves the ring as much as he hates it, so maybe he thinks he can and would do good with it. That's what Boromir thought. But Boromir was wrong. As Galadriel says, doing good with the ring is how it starts, but not how it ends. As Gandalf says, if Boromir had managed to take the ring from Frodo, his family wouldn't have recognized him by the time he brought it home. So when Gollum says that they don't have to do this because he knows another way into Mordor, it's hard not to share Sam's suspicions. After all, both Sam and the reader saw Gollum arguing with himself about how to handle the hobbits. For all that Sam lacks the intuitive connection with Gollum that Frodo has as a fellow ringbearer, Sam still accurately sums up what's going on inside their reluctant guide. There are two halves, two wolves inside of Gollum. They call themselves Smeagol and Gollum, but Sam hilariously calls them Slinker and Stinker, which is also what I call my cats when they're misbehaving. These names are great because they emphasize that Smeagol isn't exactly a paragon of virtue. He's just less aggressive and ambitious than the Gollum half. So Smeagol slinks and Gollum stinks. You can't trust either of them. And Sam is right that they have made a deal with each other. Keep Frodo and the ring under their watch, out of Sauron's clutches, and wait for the chance to take the precious back. Sam is also right that the hobbits are very lucky Gollum hasn't actually asked what it is they're doing with the ring. If he knew they were trying to destroy it, he would sell them out, or just go back to attacking them. Where Sam is wrong is that he doubts the alternative route into Mordor even exists. It does, and Sam fails to make the connection to the she that Gollum mentioned. But, as Sam thinks, this is ultimately Frodo's choice, because it's his quest, his burden to bear. And he proves himself worthy of it here. Frodo acknowledges that their only hope of success is trusting Gollum once more. Fate, he says, has brought these enemies together as friends. The same fate that led Bilbo to find the ring in the first place, according to Gandalf. Plus, as Frodo subtly reminds Sam, Gollum has proved worthy of that trust so far. The way Frodo tells it, the hobbits aren't even in danger from Gollum. Gollum is the one in danger, from the ring. It's already twisting his promise around. Gollum has given himself away by asking for it back. Or rather, Smeagol has. That's what Frodo keeps calling him. He uses that name not so much to appeal to the better angels of Gollum's nature, but to cut to the heart of things, the true names, the true nature of what's happening to them. You will never get it back. Frodo says that twice for emphasis, like once for each half of Gollum. He's not judging Gollum. Frodo knows that the ring has mastered Gollum, speaking through his voice. It's doing the same to him. Frodo tells Gollum that if he, Frodo, put on the ring and ordered Gollum to jump into the fire, he would do it. This is an intense moment, one that changes Frodo in the eyes of Sam, Gollum, and the audience alike. He's not just fading into the ring, he's interacting with it. Ironically, he's making use of the ring's power to further his mission of destroying it, not by putting the ring on, but by threatening to put it on and become Gollum's true master, body and soul. In a way, this foreshadows the showdown at Mount Doom. Frodo mentions Gollum leaping off a precipice or casting himself into the fire, and he does both at the climax of the story. The twist here, though, is that Frodo doesn't order Gollum to do that while wearing the ring. 
It happens while they're fighting over the ring, as Gollum bites it off Frodo and takes a finger with it. The bloody payoff for the simmering tensions here in Book 4. For the moment, Gollum is terrified into submission. As Tolkien writes, both Sam and Gollum made the mistake of thinking that Frodo's kindness made him foolish. Saruman made the same mistake with Gandalf. Eventually, the hobbits get Gollum to tell them about this other way into Mordor. Gollum's description of the path doubles as world-building. We've seen the strength of Mordor, and now we get a sense of the border between Mordor and Gondor, as well as how the war is turning against Gondor. We will explore this dynamic further when we meet Faramir. Tales keep twisting and turning and interfering with each other. The road is a journey through history. Gollum keeps turning from the path, literally and figuratively. First, his mind wanders too far south, and then when they do get him back to focusing on the old fortress, it sends him back in time to his youth, centuries ago by the Great River, when they told stories that were ancient even then. Wonderful stories, Gollum says. A glimpse of his innocent roots. Stories about the kings of men with their mighty towers. One of them was Minas Ithil. Pale white against the black, like the moon fallen to earth. It was the city of Isildur, Aragorn's ancestor who cut the ring from Sauron's hand. The Dark Lord suffers from that wound still, if Gollum is to be believed. It's Sauron's equivalent of the wound Frodo took on Weathertop, as well as foreshadowing for Frodo losing his own finger, as I mentioned earlier. The Dark Lord took Isildur's city as revenge. There it was, and there it is, Gollum says, though it has been changed. Another commentary on what it means to exist in time. The shining towers of Minas Ithil exist now only in memory, in story, like Isildur himself. Now the city is a nightmare, reflecting Sauron's hatred of Isildur. Although, as Frodo says, Sauron hates everything and everyone. That fate awaits all of Middle-earth if they should fail. But the Dark Lord is not omniscient. Not yet, anyway. As Gollum says, his attention is elsewhere. He's focused on getting his armies ready to march through the Black Gate and take over Gondor. His eye can't be everywhere at once, giving the hobbits a chance to slip through. That's exactly what Aragorn is counting on when he leads his own army to the gate as a diversion at the end of Book 5. Victory, if it comes, will be more subtle than Sauron would ever expect. The hobbits will have to sneak and slink like Gollum to make it through. For behind the Nightmare City is the hidden entrance, Gollum says. A path, a stair, a tunnel. It's like a theme park he knows better than anyone. On reread, you can see Tolkien's careful craftsmanship. He doesn't try to fool the reader or the hobbits into thinking that Gollum is fully on the level here. Instead, he misdirects us about the source of the danger. Sam thinks that Gollum has been hobnobbing with orcs for too long to be trusted. Frodo is worried that Sauron let Gollum loose deliberately to use him to track the ring like a bloodhound. But Gollum is plainly correct that there is no safe, sensible way to enter the worst place in the world. There's a risk no matter what choice Frodo makes. And what he's talking about is still less risky than trying to just rush the Black Gate. When the hobbits press him further on the question of whether this other pass is guarded, he clams up. But both hobbits and first-time reader alike are probably going to assume that the threat is orcs, or maybe the ringwraiths. We're probably not going to make the connection to the she that Gollum mentioned, just like Sam doesn't make that connection. All Tolkien tells us for now is the name of the place. Kirith Ungol, a name of dreadful rumor, he writes, without telling us what the rumors are. Aragorn knows the rumors, and so does Gandalf, but they're not here. Tolkien lifts us out of the Hobbit's perspective for a moment to show us the eagle-eye view, so to speak. At this very moment, Gandalf is slapping Saruman around in the ruins of Isengard, a total contrast to the Hobbit's shrinking before the might of the Black Gate. Once again, we can see that Saruman is merely an imitation of Sauron.
Saruman still matters, though, because his treason has delayed Gandalf just like it did early on in the story, leaving the hobbits on their own. Gandalf, Tolkien writes, is thinking of Sam and Frodo, with hope and pity. It does them no good. Frodo is wrong that Gandalf is gone, but he's right that Gandalf has never entered Mordor and that he might not have actually had a plan for how to do it. That's why he faltered back in Book 2 when trying to describe this part of the journey to the Hobbits. Even if Gandalf hadn't been lost in Moria, his counsel might not do Frodo any good right now. Frodo might be a simple hobbit of the quiet countryside as he thinks, insufficient for doing things that the great people ought to be doing. But the choice is his, intertwined with the choice he made to step onto the road in the first place. The beginning of Frodo's story back in the Shire seems so remote to him now that it feels like it belongs to another story altogether. A chapter in a story of the world's youth, Tolkien writes, when the heavenly trees still bloomed and there was reason to be happy, to have hope. Now all the paths in front of Frodo seem to lead to death and ruin. The road led him here, after all. What good is choice when we all share the same fate anyway? As Tolkien writes, the three of them look like skeletons from above, like they're already dead, the choice made for them. Below them, ranks of men march to the gate. Earlier in the chapter, a similar army gave Frodo a moment of hope. Maybe the free peoples have gotten their shit together and formed an alliance like in the stories. Maybe I don't have to do this after all. But no. That army had come to serve Sauron, not resist him. The gate opened for them. Same with this army. The odds are stacked against the free peoples, and there's a momentum effect here. The more it looks like Sauron's inevitably going to win, the more people want to join the winning side, a self-fulfilling prophecy. One day, Gollum says, everyone will be inside Mordor. Another succinct summary of Sauron's goal, like he will eat all the world earlier. The whole world will be his domain. There will be no outside, not ever again. He won't even need the Black Gate at that point. What saves our heroes from despair? Stories, of course. Sam wonders if the army of men have an Oliphant with them. They don't, as it turns out. That'll have to wait until the next chapter. But what matters here is that just the possibility of seeing one makes Sam forget about his fear. He recites a poem, a fragile flower of story here in the desert, describing all the features of an Oliphant, familiar, of course, to the reader from Elephants in Real Life. It's just a nonsense rhyme, Sam admits, something they teach to hobbits when they're children. He's never actually seen one any more than he actually had seen the elves before setting out on this journey. But the power of myth is the connections it makes through time and space. There have been hobbits who strayed from the Shire before Frodo and Sam, even before Bilbo. The memory of what they experienced out there has been preserved in story, in song, in little quirks of language like news from Bree that the hobbits these days wouldn't be able to fully explain if pressed on it. It's tradition, that's all. A shard of meaning preserved against time. Things we hang on to even as the context changes around us. Gollum doesn't want to see Oliphants. He doesn't even want them to be, he says. He's lost that capacity for wonder. If it's not the ring, he doesn't want to know about it. Sam's little reverie is so incongruous, but that's exactly what makes it so powerful for Frodo. He laughs in the middle of his cares, Tolkien writes, and that laugh releases him from the torment of doubt. It helps him make the choice. And I love that it's not even a real Oliphant in the flesh and blood that does this for him. It's just the story of one, just the idea of one. The legend of the unknown, which inspires us to continue, even in the face of a no-win scenario. Frodo wistfully imagines Gandalf showing up at the head of an army of Oliphants, riding a white one himself. 
But when Gandalf the White does show up to the Black Gate in force, it will only be a distraction, like I said, so that Frodo can finish the story. And it only happens because Sam was here to remind Frodo that there was more to life than death. And we're all just stories in the end, if we're lucky. So in all my Lord of the Rings episodes, I've been wrapping things up by talking a little bit about how the movie adaptations made by Peter Jackson and company that came out around 20 years ago have handled each stretch of the material. And there's not all that much to say about how the movies handle this chapter. It's a simple and straightforward execution that doesn't overplay its hand. After all, we'll be coming back to the Black Gate in movie 3 for a much more dramatic scene, Aragorn's last stand against the forces of evil. For this, all you need is a handful of elements. A big-ass, beautiful lead miniature with every cruel spike you can imagine Sauron would install in his front door, a little indoor hill set matted in front of it, Andy Serkis shrieking and whispering with equal fervor. That's movie magic, folks. And there's a nice little nod here to the scene in The Wizard of Oz, where Scarecrow, Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion look down at the Wicked Witch's fortress. Same camera angle, same looming sense of dread and despair. They even have the chanting armies in common. This scene does have an example of something I don't like in the Lord of the Rings movies, especially the second and third ones, where minor moments have this, like, kind of forced and easily resolved beat of tension just to make sure no one gets bored with downtime in between the major set pieces. In this case, it's a couple guys in the army noticing the hobbit's movements on the hill before eventually shrugging and turning back and nothing comes of it. But I do love the trick of the elven cloak disguising the hobbits from their sight. It really does look like a rock, all gray and wrinkled. Again, movie magic. So that's going to wrap up this Lord of the Rings episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you have the chance, rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where patrons get early access to our episodes and exclusive episodes like the series on Star Wars that I've been doing for a couple weeks now. You can find us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com and you can find me at Quentin on Twitter. So next week, the Hobbits and their loyal faithful guide Gollum are going to be heading down into the country of Athelion where they find herbs, stewed rabbits, and a guy named Faramir. Is he related to anyone important? Nah, probably not. We'll see you in our next episode for Book 4, Chapter 4 of The Lord of the Rings.